we are going to make our way to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. So if you guys want to take out your Bibles and turn to Hebrews in the 11th chapter, that's where we're going to be headed while uh, the beautiful little ones make their way down. So as you guys arrive in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, what you know by now that we've covered this for uh, nearly four months, I think, in this book, is that the theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. And what the writer does at the very beginning of the letter is he writes that Jesus is better, and he begins a series of uh, doctrinal statements, essentially teaching, showing why, the proof statement behind the thesis that Jesus is better, and he begins with the prophets. He starts with prophets, he then transitions quickly to angels, the messengers of God, he moves on to priests, the mouthpiece of God, he shows then later that Jesus is better than Moses and Abraham and Joshua and all these greats of their Old Testament, even transitioning to the very tabernacle itself, the building of God, the place where people would come and meet with the presence of God there in the tabernacle, that Jesus is better, he is preeminent, he has authority over all all of these things. And as we arrive then in chapter 10, what he begins to do is make a transition as he covers that Jesus is even better than the sacrificial system itself. That he, being the perfect sacrifice, giving of himself on our behalf, he became, instead of just a kofar, a temporary covering like what the Hebrews says, he became the permanent, the fulfillment, the the for all of eternity sacrifice that you and I need. And so as the writer's communicating this throughout these first 10 chapters, he then makes a transition to go from simply communicating uh, all these doctrinal truths that now he's going to say, let me show you how this plays out through Scripture. Let me show you how these teachings can actually be applied, but I'm not just going to show you the application and tell you to go do it. I'm going to actually show you people who have done it. I'm going to go back to the stories and walk through Old Testament history and show you the faith that those Old Testament heroes had from the very beginning. And so the first thing the writer does, though, at the beginning of chapter 11, we covered this a bit last week, in verse 1, he gives them a definition of faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made visible, were not of Excuse me, the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And so what we see is this uh, definition of faith takes place in these first three verses. And now the transition is, while faith is defined at the beginning, he's now going to show how it's displayed through the rest of the chapter. So we only have 36 verses to make it through. Uh, Fasten your seatbelts. Let's pick up in verse 4. By faith... Abel, going all the way back to Genesis, what we just read through our Bible study plan this last week. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God, testifying of his gifts, and through it being made, uh, through it, he being dead, still speaks. And so what we see is the faith of Abel is displayed through the way that he worshiped. Abel's worship, his sacrifice, you remember these two sons of Adam, Cain and Abel, they came to bring a sacrifice, but what Cain brought was the work of his hands. He brought the the grain from the field to offer to God, but what God desired wasn't the work of their hands, but actually 
uh, his provision. Uh, it took blood to atone for sin. And we know this from even the story of their parents, Adam and Eve, when they had sinned. They had been separated from God for all of eternity. What did God do? But he took the fig leaves that they had made from their own hands, and instead he gave them a, a blood sacrifice. He covered them with his provision instead of the provision that they came forth with. And this was the issue with Cain. He was coming with a sacrifice that was from his own hands. Now, as we look at this story, we think it, it seems kind of harsh in some ways. And yet, please understand what God was concerned about was the heart. He's always concerned about the heart that we come to worship with. It's not necessarily the way, the manner. It's what is the heart behind the way that we worship. And so in the faith example of Abel, we see a heart that was willing to worship in the way that was loving of God, thankful to God. Now we transition from a worship style faith to then verse uh, 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God, because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And so we transition from Abel now to Enoch. And if you know anything about Enoch's story, back in Genesis chapter 5, he walked with God, is what we're told, and then he was not. He was there on the earth walking with God, and then God translated him before death. He took him off the scene completely. God was so pleased with him, but what you know is the follow-up story to this is the story of Noah. So prior to the judgment taking place, God took his a follower, this man named Enoch, uh, out of the scene. He translated him. He raptured him prior to the judgment. And so as we talk about things like pre-tribulation uh, rapture, this is one of those texts that we go to and go, uh, Enoch is a picture of the church in this spot. He was taken away before the judgment would come. And I won't go too far down that rabbit trail this morning, but what I want to share with you is Enoch's faith was one that was defined by his walk. He walked with God. So Abel was a worshiper. Uh, Enoch was one who walked with God. We then go to verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so in, after these first two stories are shared, we now have this verse dropped right in our lap that says, without this faith, it is impossible to please God. And then there are two uh, distinct things that are mentioned about faith. Uh, the first of which is uh, believing that he is. This is key for us in this faith journey. It's believing that God is. As Moses was there uh, in the wilderness and God appeared to him in a a bush that was continually on fire. He gives Moses this great uh, charge to go and bring the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He says, I want you to go do this. Moses says, okay, I I'm willing to listen, but who do I say sent me? How do I know people are going to listen? And God's response in Exodus chapter 3 verse 4 was that, uh, I tell them I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. Now, what does that mean? You might wonder. Well, what it means is he's communicating, I am whatever you need me to be. You fill in the blank. And so throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God uh, continues to give the nation all these different names for himself. But it always starts off with, I am. I am a companion when you need it. When you are in need of healing, I am Jehovah Rophe, uh, God my healer. 
When you need righteousness because your righteousness is lacking, I am Jehovah to Sidkenu. I am God, my righteousness. When you need a, a banner to cover you and to protect you in love, I am Jehovah Nisi, God, my banner. And so God is saying, I am whatever you need me to be in the situation that you're in. But you have to first believe that I am. So this is the key to faith, the, the starting off. It, it starts with believing that he is. And for most of us in here, um, that's not a problem. We can believe that he is. Where the struggle comes is at the end of this verse, for uh, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and then secondly, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's not enough to just say, I believe that he is, but I also believe that he's good. I believe that he is going to reward those who diligently seek him. And this is the struggle for us. So oftentimes we come to him, we believe, and yet we don't want to invest any kind of time in actually seeking him, in spending time with him. We have all kinds of excuses. Uh, I don't have enough time. I've got too many things going on. I'd love to diligently seek him. And yet what we all know, if we're really honest with ourselves, is we waste so much time. At our house, we call them the middle minutes. Those minutes where you've got a few on your hands and you just begin scrolling the book of face, right? Next thing you know, 20 minutes have gone by and you're not sure what you looked at. But we have time to diligently seek him. It's a question of uh, priority. And as we look at what we make our priority, if we believed, truly believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, a good father that's looking to give good gifts, then we would make him a priority. But for me, at least, I struggle because so many times I'm seeking all the other things and I forget about his righteousness. But Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all the other things will be added. <laughs> I get excited about all the other things being added and I forget the first part, which is I'm just called to seek him and to trust him, to believe that he is going to reward me. And, and the world wants us to get all caught up with seeking all these other things. But what uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 is this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I have underlined that in my Bible as a reminder. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Seeking him first, allowing him, trusting him to fill in all the gaps, to take care of me in, in ways that I can't possibly fathom, it's tremendous gain and priorities begin to change and what happens is all that anxiety that we have because who's going to provide how's it going to get taken care of how's it going to get fixed I then begin to just trust by faith Lord I don't know how this is going to work out but I believe that it's going to work out which is a perfect transition to the next story that of Noah who in verse 7 by faith Noah being divinely warned of things not seen moved with godly fear prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah's faith wasn't displayed in his worship or uh, in his walk as much as it was displayed in his working. Noah was called and then he, he got to work. But think about this calling. He was told by God to prepare a boat and guess what? It had never rained before. The earth was watered by a mist. People had never seen rain. And so by faith, he was called to prepare this boat even before it ever rained. And God said, look, when you do this, I'm going to take care of your sons 
and their wives. I'm going to use this as a way to save you. But if it wasn't crazy enough that Noah was building a boat before it rained, you know what else he didn't have? Any sons. This was 20 years before he would ever have a child. He was building a boat for a family that God hadn't even given him yet. By faith, he was in this spot. And so he was leading his family in this way of just simple obedience. I don't understand all that God has in store for me or all that I'm up to, but through my labor, I believe that God is going to provide. And so Noah, in this spot, he was interceding on behalf of his family, just swinging a hammer, going to work. It wasn't as spectacular as we want to make it seem. It took 120 years to get there, but he believed what God said. We continue... And by faith, Abraham, now moving from Noah to the father of the faith, Abraham, uh, obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And so Abraham now is the next person, next patriarch. He's called from this land called Ur of the Chaldees. It's essentially modern-day Iraq. They're in Mesopotamia. His father was an idol maker. There was nothing special about Abraham other than he had a heart that was turned toward God. And God said, look, I want you to get up out of here and go to a land that I'm going to give you. Now, you know what God didn't do is he didn't say, hey, I need you to take out your idol phone and I want you to open up maps and I'm going to show you where I'm going to send you and you can track the route the whole way and you can know how long it's going to take to get there. Um, it didn't work like that. God told Abraham to go and his charge was to go. God didn't give him all the directions that it was going to take. It was by faith that Abraham had to take the next step. And this is the way this faith relationship works with us. We have to take the next step before God gives us the next step. He won't let you go to step two until you've first done step one. And you're not going to know everything there is about step one. You have to, by faith, proceed. You have to, by faith, like Joshua, when he brought the nation of Israel up to the Jordan River. They were getting ready to enter into the promised land, this land that, they had, that God had promised Abraham 400 years before they ever got to this point in the book of Joshua. And as they arrived there, the Jordan River was swollen because of all the rains that would happen at the time of harvest. And so the, the river, this little Jordan River, now looked like the Mississippi. It was out of the banks of the river. And as Joshua brought the nation up to the edge of the river, what the Lord said is, tell the priest to lead with the Ark of the Covenant and start walking. Now, if you're anything like me, I would say, Lord, I will follow, but could you please just stop the water first? I mean, this river looks huge. Remember, you brought us out of uh, Egypt. You parted the Red Sea. Please just stop the water, and then we'll proceed. We, we will be good boys and girls if you just show us. But God didn't do that. Instead, Here's from Joshua chapter 3, uh, verse 15. What the Lord said. I'll get there eventually. Oh, I lost it. But I found it. There we go. And those who, who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. As they arrived, God's command was, you're going to have to get your feet wet. By faith, they had to actually start the journey. And as the priest's feet 
stepped into the Jordan, what God did was he stopped the waters. And the rest of the nation was able to proceed, able to make their way across into the promised land. But it first took a faith that would step into the water. And this can only happen in our life for you and I if we have in our head uh, this understanding that everything this life has is temporary. That what God has got us on is actually an eternal journey. That we're working our way in this faith relationship. Because without an eternal uh, mindset, without eternity factored in, all these steps of faith, they just seem crazy. It sounds like oftentimes a bad joke. Like, you really want me to do this? Like, that, that seems insane. And yet, God's promise is to see us through it and to actually grow us in the middle of it. That's the reason the Lord will, will put us to these kind of tests, to allow these things in our life so that he can grow us for an eternal relationship. We're entering into this uncomfortable spot, but, but knowing, Lord, you're going to grow me in this. I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what it's going to look like in this next season. But by faith, I'm going to put my feet in the water and, and watch you dam up the Jordan River. I'm excited about that. And so we grow in this relationship. And this is the spot Abraham was in. He went out by faith. Verse 9, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, their heirs with them of the same promise. 4 verse 10, he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. You see, what Abraham knew as he made his way on this journey is that one step at a time, there was no satisfaction he was ever going to find on this earth that compared to what God had in store, what the Lord had in store for him. And this is often the hang-up for us, is that we get our minds so fixated on the temporary that we begin to put expectations and we begin to build plans on how things are going to go. And so we step out by faith, but then we, we ask, well, Lord, uh, what happens if this place you're sending me, it doesn't work out? I can tell you uh, it probably won't. <laughs> it probably isn't going to work out the way you thought. Well, what if I, I marry him and he doesn't fulfill my needs? Well, here's a little newsflash. He's not gonna. Not even close. I mean, look at my dear wife. I mean, I was skinny and had hair. Like, you're going to be disappointed. This is going to happen. What if that job I take, it doesn't work out? Um, it's not going to. It's not going to work out. Now, how's that for some encouragement? But it's not going to work if our eyes are fixated on the temporary. That any person, any relationship, any job, get this, any church, when we put our faith in that, we are going to be let down. We are going to be disappointed every single time without exception. But what the Lord desires is us to instead have our focus on Him and a foundation, a city that builder and maker is God. In putting our focus on Him, we will never, not one single time, be let down. And in this spiritual journey that we're on with Him, uh, his promise is to take you and I as deep as we want to go. I shared with you last week at the end of service, God put it on my heart to talk about Ezekiel and the water that flowed out of the temple into the Dead Sea. What God was showing is this picture of a thing that was dead. His spirit is going to bring life to that. But as Ezekiel journeyed from the temple 
and made his way further and further down the stream. The water went from his ankle to his knees to his shoulders to completely over his head. That's our spiritual journey with the Lord. It's, it's a process of letting him completely surround us, overtake us with his spirit. And in the process, it is life. It's life. Now, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. She's now judging the Lord as faithful. Therefore, verse 12, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And so in this story, this is Genesis 18, if you want to make a note and go back there later this week, but this is a story of Sarah and Abraham, and they're visited by God. The Lord comes to visit Abraham at their tent. And as the Lord is visiting with Abraham, Abraham, like most guys, didn't know he was having a guest. He's like, honey, go get dinner on the table. Get some bread made quick. We got the Lord here to visit. And so Sarah goes away behind in the tent. She begins to prepare supper for them. And the Lord sits down and he tells Abraham, look, this time next year, you're going to have a child. Remember how I promised you're going to be the father of nations? You are going to have a son. Now this is 25 years after God gave him the initial promise. By this time, Abraham, as verse 12 says, he's as good as dead. He's 100 years old. He's not even close to the age that should be having a child. And Sarah is approaching 90. And so as God shares with them this story, like Sarah's going to conceive. It's going to be the child of promise. Sarah's overhearing. She's eavesdropping on the Lord, and she chuckles. She laughs. And God, sitting outside the tent, he says, hey, why did Sarah laugh? And immediately Sarah pokes her head out from around the tent and says, well, I didn't laugh. Oh, oh yeah, you did. I heard you. And this back and forth, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. You laughed, Sarah. Her faith, she couldn't believe that God was going to do this. And so as the child was born, just as the Lord said a year later, they named him Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. <laughs> they named him laughter because it's, it's hilarious that these two would have had a child at this age. And yet in this story, what we read is God counted her faith because she was faithful about the promise. I read the story and she laughed. God looks at the story and said, I only needed a little bit of belief. I didn't need but a mustard seed to be able to work with. This is all Sarah had, and yet God honored it. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So here's God giving Abraham all these promises. I'm going to make your descendants as many as the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. But Abraham never actually saw the fulfillment of God's promise in this life. His life instead was defined by two things, tents and altars. Everywhere Abraham went, he lived in a tent. Never one time did he have a, a permanent structure. And it allowed him to live this simple lifestyle. God called him to go somewhere. He was able to just pack up and go to the next place. Because his, the city he was looking for, it, it didn't have a man's hands as the builder and the maker. It was God who had determined his future. And so he was able to pack up and move. But then everywhere he went, 
he would construct an altar. He would worship God. And the encouragement I want you to take out of this is this simple lifestyle. As a father and a leader, he was also a worshiper. Everywhere he went, he worshiped. And so I'm encouraged by that, that wherever we place our tent, wherever we go, as leaders of our household, we are called on to just be worshipers. And it doesn't matter if it's here on a Sunday morning or in the car. I want to encourage you as you lead your families to be a worshiper. I oftentimes find myself in the middle of Walmart. I'm told that's not the place to worship. I don't really care at this point. Put up an altar, worship right there. Now, some of you, uh, Guns N' Roses is not a worship band, so it's not the same thing uh, if you just start belting out uh, Welcome to the Jungle. But in this spot, uh, be a worshiper, right? Be free to go and worship wherever the Lord takes you. Now, verse 14 for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You see, if Abraham had been focused on everything he left behind a successful career, uh, all his family's support. If he had been focused on all that he left at the Ur of the Chaldees, he would have been completely miserable. And what this verse tells me is God would have given him the opportunity to go back to it. If you don't want to follow me, you can go and return. And this is the issue for the writer of the Hebrews. This is what he's writing to them about. They are thinking about going back into that tradition, to go back into that way of life. And what the Lord has said over and over again is, he's a gentleman, I'm going to allow you to go back, but you're going to leave, you're going to miss out on a heavenly country, one that is so much better, one that in Revelation 21 is described as the New Jerusalem, a city made by God for his people to inhabit for all of eternity, something so much better. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. We'll get into that story in just a second. But um, for any of you that have read through the Old Testament, what you know is Isaac was not his only son when we read through the story. That before Isaac came around, even though he's referred to as his only begotten, uh, Sarah and Abraham, they got a little impatient with this whole waiting for a child for 25 years thing. And 10 years in, Sarah says, look, uh, I'm obviously not meant to conceive. We are going to need to help God out a little bit. Maybe you misheard God. And so he had, uh, she had Abraham take her handmaiden, a little Egyptian girl named Hagar, and to have a child. Now, this seems odd to us, but in that day, this would be like her having a surrogate child. And she gave birth then to Ishmael. But this wasn't what God said. God said, I'm going to give to you and Sarah a child. And what Ishmael uh, is a picture of in the Old Testament and became from that point forward is a, is a picture of them trying to help God out. Have you ever been in that spot? Like, God, you gave me this promise, but I'm just going to have to help you out a little bit. I mean, you need me to participate, obviously, in this situation. You need a little work of the flesh. And the result of this whole relationship, because they decided to help God out, was much of their life, it looked like something from Family Feud or the Jerry Springer. I mean, it was a disaster of a relationship from that point forward. And yet, 
you get to places like Hebrews chapter 11, and what God says is, Isaac is your only begotten. There's no remembrance of the work of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm encouraged by that. That he doesn't remember all my works of the flesh because I've got all these little Ishmael's all over the place. I don't mean illegitimate children. I'm saying all, all these little Ishmael's where I've tried to help God out here and here and here and, and, and I'm frustrated by it and yet for all of eternity what God says is um, I'm only going to remember the work of the Spirit. I'm encouraged. Verse 18, of whom, speaking of the only begotten, it was said, in Isaac your seed it shall be called. And Abraham concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And so this story comes from Genesis chapter 22. And Abraham is called now, he's waited all this time on this uh, child of promise. And now he's finally here, and the Lord says, Okay, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac. I want you to take him to Mount Moriah. Take him up to the top of the mountain. And then I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to kill your only begotten son for me. Tremendous test of faith. Abraham growing in this faith relationship. Notice God didn't ask him to do that day one. He waited until they were years and years into the relationship. He calls him into this sacrifice. And so Abraham, being now a man of faith, he does what the Lord commands. He heads to Mount Moriah, and then he proceeds on a three-day journey up Mount Moriah. And what Hebrews 11 says is that the only thing Abraham could reckon in his mind is that God was going to raise his son Isaac from the dead. Now, do you know in Scripture how many times up to this point someone's been raised from the dead? Zero. Nobody been raised from the dead to our knowledge before. But Abraham had faith that God could do it and that he would do it. But this three-day journey from the base of Mount Moriah when they left the servants behind, he and his only begotten son made their way up to the top of the mount where he was to sacrifice his child. His son, in his mind, was as good as dead. He, he felt like what we often feel when we're waiting on God to answer something in our life Right, that, that these three days might as well have been 300 years because the waiting, in, in the words of the great worship leader, uh, Tom Petty, uh, take it on faith, take it to the heart, the way he ate is the hardest part. Right, the, the way he ate is the hardest part. Like this is the difficulty, it's, it's awful, right? But Abraham, he waited until they arrived there at the top of the mountain. And what uh, chapter 22, verse 8 says is so valuable for us as you look at this picture that we get of the Father, capital F, and the Son. This is all a picture of God and Jesus that would play out way later in the New Testament. But Isaac, as they're carrying up the wood of sacrifice, Isaac, no doubt, carrying it on his back, as, as they're carrying the wood, he says, Hey, Dad, we got the wood, we got the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, Abraham says, God will provide for himself a sacrifice. Now, for a little homework assignment, if you dig into the Hebrew just a little bit, the word, uh, the actual phrase is, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And so as he's getting ready to sacrifice his son, his only begotten son, 
a little side note, um, Isaac was likely 30 years old at this point, which makes Abraham 130. And how many of you know there's no 130-year-old man going to overpower a 30-year-old man? Which means Isaac would have had to willingly obey the will of the father, laying himself on the altar. Dad, I trust you. Then just in that moment, God provided himself a sacrifice, a ram in the thicket, and the Lord says, Abraham, I want you to stop. Stop right there in your tracks. You don't need to go any further with this exercise. And his son, who was as good as dead, was resurrected on that day. It was this beautiful picture as they came back down the mountain. This is the faith of Abraham. Now, verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, his twin sons, concerning things to come. And by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, this being Ephraim and Manasseh, and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. And so now we have this picture of these fathers getting ready to pass off the scene, giving blessings, passing blessings on down to the sons. And what I wanted to stop here for and encourage you is, um, don't miss out on an opportunity to bless your children. That blessing your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren, if you're fortunate enough to see them, or nieces or nephews or just dear friends, uh, pass blessings on. Because when you do that, it'll do several things. First of all, when you lay hands on them, it communicates tender affection. They realize how much you love them as you just have the opportunity to lay your hands on their head and pray over them. Secondly, what they would often do is they would pray a present affirmation. What they would pray is uh, things that uh, like, uh, you son are like a crouching tiger or a ravenous wolf or you're a strong tree. What they were doing is they were praying things that they saw in their child even if the child didn't see it. Understand, our kids have an image problem, right? We can all agree on that. They don't see themselves like we as parents or grandparents see them. And so it gives an opportunity to pray that encouragement into their life right now. This is who you are. You're not who the world says. You are a ravenous wolf. You are a strong lion, a crouching tiger. This is who God has made you out to be. So it's present affirmation. The third and final thing that it does is it gives an opportunity to pray future direction into their life to pray over them and say, you're not going to be defined by these things. There's something greater for you. Praying over them, the Holy Spirit that would be upon them. I am not bashful about laying my hands on my children to pray over them. I will pray that the Holy Spirit would be impactful in their life, that God would call them into ministry. He would make them great men and women of God. He would make them leaders of their families. I pray for that for my kids. And there are people that would say, you know what, that's bold, and maybe that's a little brazen, and you shouldn't pray all that success into your kids' lives, spiritual success and and eternal promises. And I've thought long and hard about how to answer that, people that want to refute doing that, and this is what I've come up with. You can use this if you want. Um, I would answer them by saying, took me a long time this week to come up with that. That's how I feel. Like, I'm not going to be ashamed of praying over my kids because they can receive future direction no different than what these fathers did that prayed blessings on their children and their children's children. Verse 22. 
By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. And so you might remember the story of Joseph. He rose up to the number two in charge of all the nation of Egypt. I mean, if he said go, Egypt went. And yet Joseph didn't consider this to be his spot. He knew that he had a place in Israel, a future that was far superior to this. And so he said, when I die, I want you to take my bones and I want you to carry them out of this place. Don't bury me in Egypt, a picture of the world. I want you to take me to the promised land. And as Moses brought the children of Israel out of the promised land, they took the bones of Joseph back with them and they buried them in the land of Canaan that God had promised 400 years earlier. Now verse 23 by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. And so, fast forward those 400 years from the time of Joseph and the Hebrew people being such a, a valuable part of the land of Egypt, living up in the area of Goshen to the north, now they've grown into some two million people. And Pharaoh, he became very concerned. Like, this is now a nation. I'm worried about them. And so he gave a command that all the baby boys of the Hebrew people be thrown into the Nile River. But what we're told here in verse 23 is Moses' parents looked at him, and by faith they said, he's a beautiful child. We're not going to listen to the king's command. And I love that because what parent doesn't think their baby's beautiful? I mean, really? I get the opportunity to go to hospitals and pray for babies, and I've had lots of my own babies. I got to tell you, they're not. Like, they're red, and they're covered with blood, and sometimes purple, and sometimes they got that cone head thing where they get sucked out, and they're like, whoa. And every single time, like, what a beautiful baby, <laughs> right? Like, what a beautiful child. And, and yet, reality is they're, they're kind of weird looking. I told Angela, I won't say which kid it was, but... When they were born, she said from the table, she's like, oh, how do they look? I said, they kind of look like a lizard. <laughs> I said, but honey, they're our lizard. So the nurse about dropped the baby. I'm like, oh, never heard anybody say that before. But it's true. Anyway, for Moses, he was a beautiful baby. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And so for Moses, his parents, by faith, put him into this ark to be delivered. And as he made his way on down the Nile River, there was Pharaoh's daughter. She was taking a bath, and she sees this beautiful Hebrew baby, and she takes the baby as her own. And what we're told is he was then considered the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but the actual uh, text in the Hebrew says he was called a son of Pharaoh. What that means is Pharaoh likely didn't have any sons, grandkids and so Moses was the next in line to take over the whole nation of Egypt this was the spot that he was put in and yet he refused the title verse 25 choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin and so Moses's choice was to actually uh, go and be a part of his people rather than accepting the pleasures of sin he was willing to suffer affliction. I think it's important for us to remember that sin is always pleasurable for a season. I mean, it wouldn't be, we wouldn't fall into it if it wasn't enjoyable, at least for a little while. And yet, nobody that I've ever come into contact with who has been stuck in a sin cycle ever goes, you know, I miss those days. I really miss 
what all happened back there. No, every time I hear, I wish there was a rewind button. I wish I could go back because I regret how that went. And so for Moses, he doesn't have to hit the rewind. He instead forsakes the world and what it had to offer. And he says, I would rather suffer and, and live for eternity than live in this life of pleasure right now that's only temporary. Verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked toward the reward. Moses could see these eternal rewards, and the rewards were people. When he looked, he saw a whole nation of people that needed a leader. They need someone to come alongside them to bring them out of this present situation. And so his life was about caring for people. In 20, verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And so by the world standards, they would look at Moses and go, oh, you walked away from everything. Like how could you walk away from all that power and prestige and money? And what Moses realized is he walked away from wrath. What, what the Pharaoh couldn't see, what the nation couldn't see was that there was a day coming. There was wrath headed their way, and yet Moses could see it. It wasn't blind faith. I don't like that term, blind faith, because we're called to walk into a faith. Maybe we don't understand it all, but it is, it is more clear than anyone who has worldly eyes could ever see. Children of faith see things clearly, way more clear than other people, and this is the spot uh, Moses was in. For the last several weeks, uh, my family and I have been reading the biography of George Mueller, who was a, a leader, uh, a man who ran an orphanage in Bristol, England. And this is an incredible faith story of him walking away from riches and, and instead giving his life over uh, to God. But in this particular passage, he was there in the orphanage with his own family and the children of the orphanage, and they were sitting around the table, and they had no food, nothing to eat. And what George Mueller did is they bowed their heads, and they thanked God for the food he provided. What the world saw was, you got no food, bro, and you're praying thanks over the food God provided? And in his biography, he goes on to say, just a few minutes after thanking God for the food he provided, there was a knock on the door, and the baker showed up with loaves of bread. He said, I don't know why I'm here, but God said, I need to show up and provide this bread for you. Thank you, sir. Come on in. A few minutes later, the milkman stops by, knock, knock on the door. I don't know why I'm here, but God sent me to provide this milk for you. And, and you see, God's provision, he could see it even though it was invisible. And this is the way it is for us. God's provision is there. We can thank him right now for the way he's going to provide for all of eternity. It's that kind of faith that we're reading about. Verse 28, By faith Moses, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith, verse 29, they passed through the Red Sea as by, land, as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. So by faith, Moses is given this command by God to go and tell the entire nation of Israel about Passover. This is where he's going to convince two million people who are already slaves, don't have enough money to take a lamb into their house, hang out with it for four days, make sure it's perfect, then kill it and roast it. 
And if that weren't enough, take the blood and I want you to wipe it over the top of your door. That's crazy. Like, who would do that? And yet Moses, because his faith was so infectious, the people said, yeah, we could buy off on that. This is what invisible faith does to people around us. It encourages them. It is infectious to them. And so this entire nation observed the Passover, the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, and as a result, they received salvation because of the blood of the lamb. And after that, they crossed through the Red Sea. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, that this is a picture of baptism, that they were brought out of the old life into the new life, headed to the promised land by faith. And yet as they passed by faith, Egypt, a picture of the world, tried to follow them. And what happened? All the world was swallowed up. Not to be remembered anymore. All their past was buried behind them. This is the story of Moses bringing the children out of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 30, as we head down the home stretch, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. And so God here calling Joshua to go into the promised land and his first place to send them is right in the middle of the country to bisect the middle of this nation and the first place they walk up to is the double-walled city of Jericho. This thing is impenetrable. They couldn't get past this if they wanted to. They're a bunch of slaves and farmers. And so God gives them the great battle plan of carrying trumpets around the city. Not just for a day, but then seven days. And you know that day one, they're kind of excited, right? Like, like it's kind of excited. We're walking by faith. We got our trumpets. But by day seven, they're starting to get discouraged. Like, really? This is the way the walls of Jericho are going to come tumbling down? Like, I don't see how this is going to work. And yet on the seventh day, as they blew their trumpets and they rallied around, they worshiped. By faith, the walls tumbled. And I stopped there to share that with you to say, for some of you, you've got relationships that feel just like that. Where there is a double-walled city stopping you from entering into the land. And you begin to get discouraged. And you begin to go, you know what? I'm going to have to take this thing by force. I'm going to have to tear these walls down with my bloodied hands. You go brave heart on it, right? You're going for it. But that's not how the walls come down. It's by faith. And so I want to encourage you to be worshipers who will continue the journey of going around the walls that you don't think they can crumble by faith. And they will tumble down. Now verse 31. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So before Jericho's walls fall down, there's a lady named Rahab who runs a brothel. And she takes in the spies because she believed that God was going to be able to take this city. Even by this bunch of farmers and people with trumpets. Like God can do this. And because of her faith, she was saved and so was her entire family. Verse 32. What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. And also David and Samuel and the prophets. In verse 33. Who through faith 
subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of, the, out of weakness, were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And so we see tremendous victories through all these stories of deliverance by faith through their circumstance, out of their circumstances. And we read these verses and we get excited. And you'll have faith preachers who will tell you, if you just believe it, you can receive it, just like all these stories. But what they uh, don't read is the rest of verse 35, which says, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mocking and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain by the sword. They wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. You see, for some, they were delivered from their circumstance, and others were delivered in their circumstance. For these great men and women of faith, they were delivered in the midst of their circumstance. And what tremendous faith, what this scripture says, is the world wasn't even worthy of those people. And I think of people that I have known that have suffered and have gone through so much more than I've ever dreamed about, and yet they were such men and women of faith. And I come back to that passage, and I go, you know what? The world is not even worthy of them. So encouraging. People like Stephen from Acts chapter 7, who as he preached the gospel to this group of Pharisees, uh, the way they handled him is they took him out to the edge of the city, and they began to stone him to death. And as they're stoning him to death, he looked up to heaven, and what he said out loud is, I see the heavens open. He praised God because he could see the city that he was headed to. He praised, he worshiped in the middle of being stoned to death. And as he is in this spot with his eyes on heaven, there in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. What has always got me about that story is here's a young man named Saul who would later become known as the great Apostle Paul. So encouraged was he by this faith that he saw that he didn't understand. While he was busy uh, agreeing to the stoning of Stephen and even advocating it, this had such a profound effect on Saul that would become the Apostle Paul that when you look at the message Stephen shared, Paul bases almost all his messages on Stephen's teachings. His faith was infectious. The faith of this man going through such a time was of such effect that this man would go on to write half of our New Testament. Such encouragement for people when they're going through their moment, through their time, through these circumstances. You can be that kind of person of faith if this is you in the midst of affliction. Now, finally, verse 39, And all these, having obtained good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, 
that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And so for all these Old Testament greats, what we're told here at the end is that they did not receive the promise. What promise is he talking about? He's talking about the new covenant. He's talking about the promise of Jesus as the Christ. They looked forward to it. They were excited about it. Someday they knew they would see it. When Jesus went down and preached to the captives in paradise, he was preaching to this whole crew. It's like, here I am. They were finally going to see the promise. But for us, we have received the promise. And we now have an opportunity to be even greater than these greats of faith, even greater than these who are in the hall of faith. You might wonder, like, how is that possible? Well, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 says, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That the Holy Spirit can actually reside in you if you but ask him to. He will come upon you with great power if you say, Lord, would you just come upon me? Give me great power in this spot. And so this promise is to actually make us of even greater faith than any of these Old Testament uh, heroes of the faith. Now, the issue that creeps up in most of our minds is we begin to think about all the ways we fall short. My mistakes, my failures, my past, my fears. This is the thing that stops us. What would people think? What if they knew this about me? What if they knew that about me? Well, what I want to share with you is as we've gone through this story and all these names, I'd encourage you to go back and actually read their stories because what you'll find is um, they were liars and deceivers. They lacked faith. They were murderers, adulterers, fornicators, womanizers. They were terrible fathers, some of them. They were even prostitutes, for goodness sakes a sordid group of characters. And yet, did you catch how much the Holy Spirit mentioned that here in this 11th chapter of Hebrews? Not one bit. God did not bring it up to our attention. The reason he didn't is because of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12 is a re-quoting from Jeremiah 31 where the Lord said, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. What God's promise, the promise of the new covenant, is to intentionally forget, to no longer remember. And so the encouragement for us is, we don't have to be shackled by that anymore. That old man, that old woman, they are dead and buried. People can talk about it all they want. I'd say, congratulations, you're talking about a dead man. I didn't like that guy either. The encouragement is we can be new creation in Christ Jesus. Men and women of faith. Jesus with skin on everywhere we go. And so, Father God, we thank you and we praise you for the promise. We praise you for all the things you don't bother to retell about our story whatsoever because you have washed us clean, that what you remember is your son, your perfect sacrifice. When you look at me, all you can see is the precious blood of Jesus washing me completely white. I am so thankful, Lord. I'm thankful I don't have to be defined about my yesterday, 
in my last week and my last decade of sin that I laid down that is frankly embarrassing. And the enemy wants to bring it up over and over again. But what you want to remind us over and over again is you're washed clean. Father, please help us to be men and women of faith, to believe that, to believe that you have rewards for us, to believe that you have uh, folks that we can encourage and come alongside. Help us to pray that into our kids and into our children's children. And Lord, help us to believe that of our own self, that what you see in us is so differently than what the world wants to convince us of. Thank you for this 11th chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's all stand. Everybody has trials and temptations. Everybody knows heartbreak, isolation. We can lay our burdens down. Lay our burdens down. What a friend we have been, Jesus. He's to us, my sins are gone. I see grace on every horizon. And forever and ever, His heart is my home. Everybody has fears, everybody got worries. Everybody knows sorrow and devastation. We can lay our burdens down, lay our burdens down. What a friend we have in Jesus, east to west my sins are gone. I see grace on every horizon, and forever and ever his heart is my home. No more betrayal, for He is faithful. He fills me up and my cup runneth over. No more betrayal, for He is faithful. How He has proven it over and over. No more betrayal, for He is faithful. He fills me up and my cup runneth over. No more betrayal. For He is faithful, how He has proven it over and over. What a friend we have in Jesus, East to West, my sins are gone. I see grace on every horizon, and forever and ever His heart is my home. Forever and ever his heart is my home. And all of God's people said, Amen.